Welcome back to Face Therapy today. I'm your host Stephen Yang. People, it's March 2023 now, and I can't believe how fast time has gone by, and also how much progress we have made in our constantly evolving face therapy field. And in this episode, we get back together with our friend Dr. Gina Sa, who you might recall from our previous episode in spring 2022, told us about her treatment of a reoccurring orthopedic infection patient, John Haverty. Gina, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Stephen. Pleasure to be here again. Yeah, and for our new audiences, Dr. Sa is the founder and director of Mayo Clinic's Face Therapy Program. And you know, throughout last year, I constantly read upon news covering your recent progress. Uh, you know, coming from more orthopedic infection cases, clinical trials, as well as the most recent cardiology case. And you know, Gina, I can't wait. I'm very excited to learn more about some recent progress you have made on your part. Yeah, Stephen, thank you so much. I I guess I'll start by kind of telling you about um, our patients. Yeah, our our uh, well, we've treated um, a bunch more patients probably uh, from since the time we talked. Um, and one of the patients was recently highlighted. He's a, a very nice gentleman who unfortunately had um, a history of heart failure. So he had cardiomyopathy and he his life was dependent on this machine called an LVAD, a left ventricular assist device. And uh, for our non-medical audience, you know, this device uh, essentially replicates the function of your heart, of your of your left ventricle, which is the largest ventricle of the heart. And um, he had what was called a uh, destination LVAD. And what that means is that this device was going to be not a bridge to transplant, but instead um, a destination VAD, meaning there will be no transplant. In other words, he was not deemed to be a candidate for a heart transplant to eventually replace this, this LVAD. So he was um, had this placed, I think, in, oh, I want to say 20, 2018, maybe. And um, at, at some point, it had become infected with methicillin-susceptible Staphylococcus aureus, or MSSA. He had um, a long, a very, very long course of intravenous antibiotics. Um, he was receiving them every day for over a year probably, and despite that, he the infection jumped to the bloodstream, so he became bacteremic. He had uh, even a surgery to clean out and uh, surgically wash out that, that area, but despite those efforts, the infection did not go away, and in fact, it, it recurred several times. So at that point, his cardiovascular surgical team led by Dr. John Stulak and Sarah Shettle, who's a physician's assistant, contacted me and they said, you know, is there any hope for phage therapy? So I thought, you know, yes, this 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 could be the perfect case for uh, phage therapy. So we partnered up with our very talented colleagues at Baylor College of Medicine, led by Dr. Anthony Moresso, Dr. Austin Trulliger, 
Miss Kiko Salazar. And they and and at the time it was Sabrina Green, Dr. Sabrina Green was uh, was part of the group, and uh, that team created a two-phage cocktail. So we had the phage, we had the patient. We had to come up with how do you deliver it, how long, what's the dose, you know, what's the frequency. And we dosed him uh, twice a day intravenously, and we we also um, thought about what would be the, the most effective delivery right. uh, for the sage besides intravenous. So we decided to, to give it topically, so direct administration um, uh, in addition to intravenous. And in order to do this, we had to um, engage Dr. Stulak and his team and say, you know, is there a way for you to give this therapy in the operating room? And Dr. Stulak just immediately said, yes, I'll do it. No problem. And and I think that is remarkable in and of itself because we're asking someone to do something that hasn't been done at Mayo in, in this type of patient and has been done only a handful of times in the world. He was open to it. So we talked about dosing. We talked about, you know, how exactly to do it. And it became very kind of logistically just, you know, not not challenging so much as it was just a lot of things to have to consider. So we worked with FDA. We worked with our internal IRB um, at Mayo and eventually got uh, permission to, to give it. And coincidentally, the patient um, came in two days before his scheduled start date with pus just pouring out of his driveline site. And I have a picture, but very dramatic. There's, you know, purulent materials coming out of the driveline site. And he is, you know, clearly not doing well at all. So, and this is sort of um, just a coincidence that it, that he happened to have this flare two days before the scheduled, you know, start time of his of his treatment and his his, his admission. Um, so we admitted him, started intravenous phage therapy, um, and two days later, Dr. Stulak took him to surgery, where they not only did they wash out the vad, but they they exchanged the vad out entirely. They took mm-hmm. it out. They put in a new one. They placed phage therapy in the surgical field. They gave him antibiotics, a standard of care antibiotics. And after that, Dr. Stulak uh, noted he um, noticed that in the postoperative setting, patients who have undergone a VAD exchange with this much bacterial burden staff normally experience a quite a bit of uh, uh, a, what we call a SIRS response. So they, they um, become hypotensive, tachycardic, and they become, they become septic actually, right? Because of the, the bacterial burden um, that they're facing. And, um, and they become hemodynamically unstable. They often require pressors. They become very, very sick in the ICU, and some patients don't recover from that, which is why doing a VAT exchange is no small feat. Um, 
and and that exchange doesn't perfectly take away all of the infected material. There's there's areas where there's there's little uh, pockets of infection still left over. We did not observe this in this patient. I, you know, it's for what it's worth, that was not observed. So his his blood pressure, his his heart rate, his hemodynamics stayed very stable in the ICU. He only actually stayed in the ICU for a few days. He had uh, his chest closed shortly thereafter. He made it to the regular floor. He made it to the rehab unit. And before he, you knew it, he was discharged. We completed six weeks of IV therapy, IV phage therapy. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that he, you know, that duration was, you know, retrospectively probably not necessary. I don't think he needed six weeks necessarily, but at the time, that was kind of um, what we were doing. Um, but, but nonetheless, he made it out of the hospital and um, he was walking a mile at a time. He was mowing his lawn. Eventually, um, we didn't even have to see him anymore in the ID clinic. Um, his wound closed up. And then he, about 18 months after completion of phage therapy, he underwent a heart transplant. Wow. So that thing that, that, yeah, so the thing he wasn't going to get from the beginning and what he really, really wasn't going to get because of this overwhelming infection of this device ultimately ended up happening because he had done so well. He had cleared his infection um, and he um, was strong enough to survive this. So he's now, he had his transplant in September of 2022. And what's that, was six months ago? Right. So he's now six months post-transplant and doing very well. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the story is really a testament to teams. So it was the cardiovascular sur surgeon's surgical team. Sarah Shuttle was very instrumental because she was the person that that made that initial contact, that that thought about the patient as a candidate, and that reached out to me. And Dr. Stulak was willing to go outside to stretch a little bit what what we would normally do in this situation to try to really help this patient, because the normal treatments that we we have were not enough to to eradicate the infection. And yeah, it it, it it's very gratifying. Um, the other team that that is that deserves to be recognized is Baylor. You know, they're the ones that biomanufactured, that provided the phage cocktail, provided the medicine here. Right. Um, and then and then we we worked to develop a protocol that that made sense um, for for the patient, and we're just thrilled that he he's you know doing so well. Right. That's a very exciting story. And, you know, there are a few points you touched upon. I would love to take a little bit more um, mm -hmm. to, to learn more about. Well, I'm, I'm first, the first thing I want to talk about is you, you highlighted these, this team effort. And the first person you talk about is uh, Sarah, the president who reached out to you. And yeah. so my question is like, uh, because I also see you going on talks uh, to tell, tell the story about face therapy and this opportunity. Do you see more people are becoming aware of this 
uh, I guess, at Mayo Clinic locally. And is that why she has the awareness of this treatment option being available to her? Yeah. Yes. I think in the last few years, um, phage therapy has become just more well-known. More people know about it. It's not such a, a margin, margin, marginalized treatment. Not that it's mainstream at all, but more and more people know about it, uh, read about it. And this particular, um, in this particular instance, Sarah, um, Sarah, I think she attended a talk of mine, or she talked to somebody who attended a talk of mine at Mayo to an internal conference or something, mm-hmm. and and that's how she that's how she found out about it. Because um, otherwise, it, it's really not because it's not a part of conventional therapy. Um, a lot of times, it, it it often happens by kind of word of mouth like this. But once the system is in place, mm-hmm. you know, their team can regularly reach out. To me and uh, and refer other patients, um, right? But it's the, but the initial contact was made kind of almost serendipitously. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, like, how does she maybe bridge this gap? Because you know, like your your previous experience has been with uh, implanted devices, but mostly for joint infection. And obviously, like the heart is a completely different condition. So I, I can see the correlation here because they are both implanted devices and the challenge have some similarities. But I'm, I mean, what other potential applications are you seeing? Do you expect to have other infection diseases coming to you? Are, are you seeing that as well? Mm-hmm. For sure, there's a lot of similarities. Um, I mean, device-related infections and biofilm-mediated infections is a group of infections that even though they're very disparate and they affect different organs, um, I would categorize them similarly because it, it all does come down to biofilm right. and um, how difficult they are to eradicate with, with antibiotics alone. And even, you know, good surgical debridement um, is sometimes not enough. So, yeah, the, they, um, I, I think um, Sarah, to her credit, you no, know, she recognized that 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 although we've never we had at that point never treated an LDAP patient before, there have been there's been a wide variety of infectious diseases that have been treated with phages, and they range from anything from you know bone, bone and joint infections to you know prostatitis, urinary tract infections, ear infections, and different device related infections, including uh, cardiac device infections. So. Yes, I, I I think that connection was, you know, an important one um, that, that she recognized. And yes, I, I think that, I guess your question is, did that sort of um, open the doors for other types of infections? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we have treated two types of infections so far, bone and joint and LDAD. Um, and, that's, and that's really because, you know, our, our series of patients that we've treated so far happens to be limited to those. But um, the sky's the limit really in terms of what kind of infections we, we, that can be treated with phage therapy. Um, and I, I, I plan, at least at Mayo, to treat many more 
types of infections, um, not just limited to those two indications, uh, but to um, to any infection that is serious and uh, and recalcitrant and not not responsive to conventional treatment. But that is to that's not to say that that phages should be relegated to only dire situations. It really shouldn't, in my opinion. In the future, once um, you know phages become licensed and developed and commercialized. I, I do think that, that phage therapy should be first line, first line therapy in a lot of situations. Um, many things like uh, simple, quote unquote, simple infections like cystitis, UTIs, urinary tract infections, and other infections um, uh, is an opportunity where phage, phages can be used first yeah. and not last. Yeah. And uh, in this case of your cardiology infection case, um, what are, in the term of using phage, as you talk about the dosage, what other some considerations were you considering specifically because it's at the heart? Well, I mean, do dosing is, you know, a, a huge uh, unknown. And we knew that we, we wanted to, uh, you know, dose them correctly, right? So not underdose, not overdose. Um, and because staph is a, is a gram-positive, endotoxin toxicity was less of a problem than gram-negative organisms. But we didn't have specific, I guess, uh, despite the fact that this was, you know, right, right uh, close to the heart and, and involving the heart, I, I don't think we kind of had to take different considerations, uh, you know, into, into play because uh, because of the fact that, you know, this is a gram-positive endotoxins weren't such a, much more in such an issue. I guess there wasn't a ton that we had to do that differently. I see. Oh, that's actually very interesting because I thought just the opposite. I thought you had to modify a lot, but I guess there are a lot of similarities in this, in these cases then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, the surgical part was very different, but in terms of the principles, that guide us uh, with phage therapy, um, and, and a lot of it is empirical because we don't have clinical trials. We don't have um, some of the PKPB studies that would give us precision, would allow us to sort of uh, give the dosing in precise ways, precise as we would want. I think that uh, uh, the principles are the same. Right. And another team that you highlighted is the team at Baylor. My question is, during the past year, you treated a few other cases with uh, autopathic uh, infection. And with this case, how have you seen things have been streamlined for you and uh, in terms of phage therapy? And where do you see rooms for improvement? Mm -hmm. So I think a couple of things have been streamlined. One is getting referrals. So having uh, fellow clinicians around me um, have a, a very good understanding now, I think, of what what patients are potential candidates. So that uh, part has been streamlined. The regulatory aspects have been have been streamlined because we've done the this before. Our IRB is used to it uh, more. Our sort of internal staff with um, uh, you know our 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 research pharmacists, our wonderful you know, nursing staff, our, our team, everyone has, is more 
um, you know, because we've been through this process, is more familiar uh, familiar with the process. I know Baylor has has been working on uh, testing phages and antibiotics. So they do kind of synergy testing between uh, phages and antibiotics to ensure that we are selecting antibiotics in a way that enhances phage activity or, or at the very least doesn't hinder phage activity in vitro. So uh, so that in vitro we get you know good results. So Baylor is constantly improving and refining their their protocols. You know, I think areas where we can see improvement are are things like biomanufacturing. You know, there's still I think biomanufacturing is one of the big bottlenecks. There's not wide networks of places that can can do the biomanufacturing. You know, we, we need, I guess, more places like Baylor. And, you know, Baylor is an academic center and uh, they have their own funding mechanism. So they have to keep going with, you know, that could be more robust in terms of They've, they've got their own internal funding and external funding mechanisms. Yeah, so, but I think also discovery of new phages is an area that, that really needs to be looked at because in this case, we did make a match between the patient's bacteria and the phage. But in a lot of cases, we don't find a match. And so the, the phage discovery pipeline is sort of scattered. It's not... Um, centralized, it's not sort of organized between different people, between different institutions. So, um, you know, you hear about this case because we happen to find a match, but what about all those cases where a match is not found and and, and we can't help the patient? That's a big problem still. Right. Yeah, that is a good point. Like the ones we're hearing are success stories. And at the same time, there are there are failures and there are challenges. So, how do you see the current supply and demand in terms of are are more people requesting it than the ones they can get access to, or do you have you know more room to take more patients in? Yeah, there's. I think the demand far exceeds the supply. I haven't quantified how many requests I get, but I I know for sure that we only are able to address a small portion of the um of the of the requests that we we do get. So there's a lack of I guess there's a lack of matching phages. The uh kind of turnaround time is is still very long. It takes many months often um to have a phage that's customized for that patient. Uh, be manufactured because you have to. There are many many steps so that you have to you have to discover in some cases discover a, a phage newly. You have to sequence and and characterize the phage. You have to understand what genes are are present, and you have to purify, replicate, and purify, and really um, it, you know purify and and make sure that it it lives up to and meets very high standards for for human patient use clinical use. So uh, that's another that's another gap, just the amount of time it takes. Mm-hmm. And because it takes so much time, that does limit sort of indications that we can treat at this time. So in other words, we can't treat patients usually who are septic or who are acutely ill 
except in maybe just a few specific cases, we, we generally can't treat those patients that are acutely ill because of uh, just the time it takes to get phages uh, ready and available for patients. We can't just pull them off the shelf at this time like we can antibiotics. Yeah. If, if you want a customized cocktail. Yeah. And, you know, f going from there, all these cases you are doing are more like one-time approval from the, uh, from the FDA. Um, mm -hmm. Probably the most heard word I've heard from last year about phage therapy is clinical trial. Like people <laughs> trying to, there's people trying to do a standard yeah. clinical trial for their phage therapy, trying to push this into, you know, to make it more available. And I also see things going on for clinical trial at Mayo Clinic. So could you please tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I have to agree. Clinical trials are, are essential. Um, we have two clinical trials that uh, we expect to start enrollment this year. The first is a clinical trial involving chronic prosthetic joint infections. Um, that is uh, an industry-sponsored study and sponsored by a company called Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, APT. And what makes this trial, I think, so important and exciting is the fact that we are not using one single fixed cocktail for each patient in this trial. Um, instead, we are using different phages in a large and ever-expanding library that is, a, that, that is a trademark library. So in other words, um, you know, I can take or we can take phage, you know, X, Y, and Z from this library and create a, a personalized cocktail for each patient who's enrolled to the, and randomized into the intervention arm. So, um, so that really, you know, is a modern paradigm shifting way to think about to, to conduct a trial. Because the, the traditional in the traditional sense, you know, every patient in the trial gets the same treatment. But in this case, every patient is getting, you know, phage, but they're getting phage personalized to to the to the uh, patient's own bacterial isolates. One of the criticisms of other uh, phage clinical trials has been the lack of, of being able to personalize. And so we're hoping that this ability to do that, to adapt, is will make a difference. And um, you know, hopefully we'll see a, a signal. The other trial is, called, is also an industry-sponsored uh, trial sponsored by a company called Phage Lux. And the indication is pressure injury, uh, stage two or higher, stage two, three, or four pressure injury that are infected or colonized by Staph aureus, Klebsiella, uh, or Pseudomonas. And what makes this trial exciting and new is that the mode of delivery is topical, so it's a spray. It mm -hmm. is a fixed cocktail, but the mode of delivery is using what's called a microcapsular, a microcapsule technology that enables the phages to be delivered topically 
and the phages will stay put uh, on the surface of the wound. And so this is a trial addresses this problem of delivering phages uh, to the site of infection. That's very cool. Yeah, the matter of delivering has has always been an interesting topic for for myself because there are mm-hmm. for, for different diseases, whether it's external wound or if it's internal internal bacterial infection, like the method of de- delivery is gonna be so drastically different. And especially if you want to take account of the PKPD over there, yeah, yeah I think th- these clinical trials are gonna be very important for the future development. I hope so. And these are only a ha- you know two trials out of many. You know, there's all kinds of trials out there. And I think, uh, you know, as as a sage person, I'm really rooting for any any of these trials to to show efficacy and to to show because all of us who have seen um, individual cases, one-off cases, have seen the potential for phage up close. And uh, so we want to be able to, to see that and capture that in, in a trial. Um, it would be very exciting for the field to have a trial that, that shows what I think is the great potential for phages. Yeah, absolutely. And well, mm-hmm. you know, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, good luck with all your clinical trials and all your cases. We hope, Thank you we so hope much. that will Yep, and look forward to see you soon again. See you soon. Thanks, Stephen. That's Dr. Gina Sa, Director at Mayo Clinic's Phage Therapy Program. I'm Stephen Young, and you're listening to the Phage Therapy Today podcast. Thanks for your continued support. If you like listening to stories like how Dr. Sa is making progress on phage therapy at the very cutting edge, subscribe and give us five stars. Be sure to leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. If you have any stories to share or have any feedbacks, email us at phagetherapytoday at gmail.com. In the end, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week.